Um, so for today, we have a bunch of really interesting topics that actually touch on some of the work that we do in our daily lives. Um, but just a warning to begin with, there might be some like strong adult language in this podcast. Um, we will try to keep it to a minimum so you don't have to earmuff your kids who are in the car if you're listening with your kids. Um, but uh, and, and I will use the same excuse that I used as a kid when I swore. I'm just repeating what somebody else said. So <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a really pretty good one. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where you want to start. We have some like updates from what we talked about last time, and we have some news stories. You know, I feel like um, with everything, we're kind of in the, the depths of the NBA season, um, and I feel like the Blake Griffin story really should be where we're, we kick things off this week. Okay, so um, for people who have been living in a cave, Blake Griffin uh, is alleged. Actually, no, he came out and he admitted that he did that, so it's not alleged anymore. He punched a friend slash and a coworker repeatedly in the head and face while uh, the L.A. Clippers were in Toronto after a game. Now, I did a little bit of research because I know you used to be a resident of Toronto. so I Montreal, just, actually. Oh, you actually? Canada. <laughs> oh, is there a McGill in Toronto, too, or is it just the one in Montreal? Just the one in Montreal. Oh. There's, uh, I think, York is in oh. and University of Toronto. Okay. Well, so, sorry. That's okay. Um, but you, I actually have never been to Toronto. I am a more West Coast Canada person, so, um, so I couldn't tell – so the – People have said that this fight took place in at Soto Soto, and there are other places online that said that this took place at Jack Astor's. I was going to ask you about it, but since you did live in Toronto, I can't ask you. I think there might be multiple Jack Astor's locations throughout Canada, uh, but um, in any case, okay. that's... So uh, essentially what happened was uh, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, um, and I think is it two staffers, but one staffer who was the one who was hit, uh, Matthias Testi, uh, they were having dinner. It was following a, a game against the Raptors, and something happened, no one's saying what, <laughs> but something happened that led to Blake Griffin punching Mr. Testi in the head. And then Mr. Testy leaving the restaurant, Blake Griffin following him, and then continuing to hit him in the head. Um, as a result, Blake Griffin has broken his hand. It is now out for maybe like four to six to eight weeks while he heals. He had, was just on the brink of coming back from like a quad injury. And so now it sets the timeline back, obviously, for him to return to the team. Um but the reason why I wanted to bring it up today was because a lot of talking media heads that we see on um the various networks have said there's no reason to suspend Blake Griffin. Um, you know, he's going to be out for like four to six weeks anyways. And that is not punishment enough. And, um, and that's, I've heard that from a couple of different places. And I just wanted to talk about that because we're labor and employment lawyers. And, you know, aside from the fact that it's never a good idea to like get into a fight with someone at dinner, um, what are the implications for like your workplace? Because, the person that you hit was a coworker. Um, so that's really where I wanted to start. Right. And so I think one question, you know, would be looking at the um, contract between the NBA and the NBA Players Association to see, you know, what are the potential punishments for Blake Griffin? Um, would there be a way to suspend him while he's out on injury leave so he's not receiving pay for those games? 
or would the suspension have to wait until he comes back, further delaying his return to the Clippers, who I think at this point kind of desperately need his help? (laughs) Um, So the answer to that question is... I'm not so there are ways for the NBA to suspend Blake Griffin for conduct detrimental to the league. It's a you know the umbrella term that that we hear quite often when uh, a player does something that can't quite be traced back to either like something that's happened on the court or directly related to um, a team activity. Um, but still, the commissioner has the power to suspend or fine an individual for that conduct. And what I can tell is um, with respect to player discipline, there's, uh, you can be fined um, $50,000 or less and 12 games or less. And that has like a special um, process by which it can be adjudicated by under the NBA CBA or more than $50,000 or more than 12 games is also a, a different, different process. Um, you know, it's really like how you can appeal it. And those that seems like the de- demarcation between like more serious versus less serious offenses. Um, but yeah, so certainly the commissioner can suspend him for, and I know that the NBA and even the LA Clippers, Clippers are investigating the incident. Um, and certainly he can be suspended by his team as well, either during the course of like the, his rehab from injury, I would imagine that if either the Clippers or the NBA suspended him for games while he was out due to his injury, they would just take the money as to what the games represented. Um, so he would be hit that way. Or they could wait till he came back and then actually suspended him for the games and the monetary representation of those games. Um, one thing to note, though, is that the team and the league can't suspend him for the same, the same incident. Yeah, for the same conduct, which makes sense. So that kind of um, echoes back to, I think it was our first podcast when we talked about Oscar Pistorius and his the concerns about double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So it's the same concept where um, you can't be punished twice for the same crime, per mm-hmm. se. But sort of circle back on, I think, Genevieve, what you really wanted to talk about was um, basically the workplace violence aspect of this. You know, I think in a lot of coverage that I've seen, um, the focus is on the fact that um, Mr. Testy is friends with Blake Griffin. He's friends with all the guys in the locker room. So this is being kind of couched as just a disagreement between friends and guys fight with their friends, I guess. Um, So sort of not um, acknowledging the fact that there is a professional relationship between these two guys and what kind of implications that may have on um, Blake Griffin and... um, Matias. Yeah, so uh, it's also one thing to note before we get into that discussion is that the Toronto police aren't investigating um, the incident. Mr. Testy did not press any charges against Blake Griffin, so so there's no criminal aspect here. But yeah, I did want to talk about how it does impact the workplace because for most of us, things that happen at work, really clear boundaries as to what that is. Within our office building, within the cubicles, um, you know, that's a really clear line of you can't punch someone at your desk at work or like in the bathroom or like, you know, get into a confrontation, physical confrontation with someone in the courtyard or something like that. Um, that's that's very bright lines. But what happens when you go to a event with a bunch of your coworkers and you're just out hanging out at a bar after work? Um, when does the line blur into this becomes a work event? And most of the time, I think we tell people, um, if you're just going out with your buddies to grab a beer afterwards, that's not 
really a workplace event. But if you're going to a bar where there are probably managers or supervisors and it's um, sanctioned as maybe like a get together after work for, you know, celebrating something that turns it into a work event. And if you get into some sort of altercation at that event, that has a nexus to your workplace and, um, and employees can actually, you know, face some sort of discipline for misconduct at these events that are taking place outside of the work, um, arena. And I think here the lines are even blurrier because, well, obviously, they were in Toronto because they had just played the Raptors the day before, the night before, and they were having dinner. It was a small group of people. Um, and one of the things that I was curious about is there is an inequity there. While they say that they're friends, obviously, um, Matthias Testi is an assistant equipment room manager, and Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan are arguably, you know, two of the stars of the LA Clippers. And so when you are in situations where you're kind of out to dinner with your boss, does that change what that dinner is? Is it really like, can you say honestly and completely that you guys are just friends and hanging out? Or is there some sort of work dynamic that goes on? Right. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, DeAndre Jordan's a big enough star that the team kidnapped him to <laughs> keep him with the team, which is a probably an issue for a separate podcast. But, you know, particularly when you're talking about um, employment that involves sort of, uh, I guess, a lot of travel, for lack of a better phrase, you know, um, for the Clippers is the Staples Center their only sort of workplace? Does it extend to every um, uh, arena that they play in? the team, you know, travel on the team planes. So I think that definitely is an open issue here, whether, um, in addition to whatever, it doesn't sound like, um, Blake Griffin is going to be subject to criminal charges, but what, um, kind of hostile workplace he may have established as part of this assault on, um, Mr. Testy. Yeah. And there is a pretty expansive, uh, definition of what on court is for, um, so for example, if you got into, um, an on the court altercation on the actual basketball, the floor of the basketball arena. So like malice at the palace, malice at the palace. <laughs> but if you also, you know, took it out to the hallways or into the parking lot, I mean, that would be still considered on court, um, issues. Um, but here, you know, as you said, if you're traveling and you're obviously a really long road trip and you're spending all this time with people, like, does that become essentially a giant, a huge workplace? Right. And I, I mean, at least I personally would say if my boss punched me in the face out at dinner, I would feel like there was something, uh, it should be considered more than just a simple criminal issue. It's definitely um, impacts the the workplace. Yeah. Or even if you are out to friends, out to dinner with your friends and your friend punches you, um, aside from it being a criminal issue, it does change the dynamic between your friendship and here it's just multiplied because it's not only your friendship dynamic that changes, but your workplace dynamic that changes too. And I think that, um, maybe it was in like Doc Rivers's interview that, you know, talked about how, um, you know, everyone's like, everything's going to be fine and, and all of that, but you don't know. And, um, and Testy could certainly, um, probably get past, uh, you know, the initial hurdle of trying to file like a complaint with the LA Clippers organization to say that, um, you know, this physical altercation took place in the workplace and it, it wouldn't be dismissed out of hand. I think that that's my point. Right. And so if, um, Matthias Testy decided to 
he clearly um, has decided not to press criminal charges, but if he wanted to take steps with the Clippers organization um, to have something done about this beyond whatever might happen to Blake um, based on the rules under the NBA CBA, you know, what, what could the Clippers do besides suspending Blake or what would the consequences of um, that be? I guess I'm just thinking off the top of my head. um, I mean, they could get, it's a hostile workplace claim. It would be, they could get it, you know, the courts involved and have kind of other oversight coming into the world of the NBA, which I'm sure they would prefer to avoid. Um, assuming that this was an argument that didn't stem from things that would uh, trigger um, Title Seven, which is like your civil rights, you know, uh, harassment and discrimination based on a protected trait like national origin, race, uh, religious uh, beliefs, things like that. Um, if this was solely just two guys who just got into a fight and there were none of those implications involved, I think it's probably just a pretty straight violence in the workplace um, analysis and as the you know as lawyers for organizations I mean it would look like to me certainly something that suspension would be would be recommended Um, again mostly mostly because of the positions that these two people hold relative to one another in the position again I think it would be different if um, you had two guys who were like two equipment room people. If they had gotten into a fight, I don't think the suspension would necessarily be as harsh, um, you know, as compared to when the supervisor of the equipment room guy punches the, the subordinate. I think that's a much different deal because as a person in management or in a supervisory or a position of that nature, you're just held to higher standards. So if Blake had punched DeAndre, we probably wouldn't be having this piece of the conversation. Yes, we definitely wouldn't. We'd be having a totally different conversation, <laughs> but definitely not this piece of the conversation, which um, that you know we sort of deal with in our in our day to day lives. Good times. <laughs> Um, so I think that uh, a lot of people have broken down like what's happened with Blake Griffin and his broken hand, but um, that's just our particular take on it, and it's been mostly informed by the fact that this is what we do for a living. So just wanted to, to talk about that, because I don't think anyone's really talked about that portion of it. <laughs> no, it definitely, it seems like a lot of people that I've heard um, are kind of debating the whole idea of, well, I've never punched my friend in the face. What would provoke you to punch your friend in the face and trying to sort of get uh, the behind-the-scenes story on why exactly Blake did what he did. Um, he has not come out to defend himself or say that he was provoked particularly, so um, perhaps he doesn't have much of a defense. But it'll be interesting to see um, if any more facts roll out about this story. Have you ever felt compelled to punch someone in the face at work? That's a really interesting question. Um, I have definitely wanted to punch someone in the face at work, but it's never occurred to me to actually do it, which this isn't really a a legal issue, more (laughs) just sort of why people do what they do. Um, It's fascinating to me, the folks who go from having the thought, I want to punch someone in the face to actually punching someone in the face. So hopefully Blake will share his thought process with us at some point. How about you? um, I have definitely wanted to punch someone in the face. And I think I might have actually said, I want to punch that person in the face, but I have not crossed that line to actually punching a person in the face. And it sort of also is um, something that I've thought about too, where in, um, especially with criminal acts, you oftentimes hear 
the defense of like, you know, a moment of passion okay. or, um, or irrationality because your, your, your reaction is just like, it was just like your animal gut instinct reaction as opposed sure. to your rational self saying, oh, hey, you just walked in on your spouse cheating on you and, um, you know, and just like lashing out and, and things like that. And I don't know that I've ever had that sort of visceral response to something that would make me like forget all reason. Right. And, you know, kind of on the flip side, you can hear in some criminal cases that, you know, well, this person said out loud, I could kill the victim. And, you know, the, the explanation is, well, who doesn't say that every once in a while? Like I could kill my boss. Doesn't mean I'm actually going to kill them. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, is part of the reason that the, um, standards in criminal cases are so high to get a conviction that, mm -hmm. you know, thinking things and saying them out loud usually aren't crimes, um, but they can be, which I think leads us into our next uh, set of topics. That was a really nice segue, Burke. <laughs> it's only taken three episodes, so here we go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, our next topic is basically there's been a lot of, like, beef recently, and I don't understand, like, maybe it's the end of January, there's something in the atmosphere, but there's just been... Mars might be in retrograde I now, no, I don't know. Yeah, but there's just been a... I don't know, just it seems to me like an inordinate amount of people like beefing with one another. Um, so I know that you have a couple of favorite ones. Yes. Yeah, so um, the, I think the, probably the winner for worst human being of the year, 2015, and he's really making a run to hold on to his title for 2016. Pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, uh recently got into a uh, beef via TMZ with uh, Ghostface Killa, one of the members of Wu-Tang Clan. As a little bit of background, um, Wu-Tang, uh, I want to say it was about two years ago, uh, did an album called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, and they made one copy of it, and they auctioned it off to the highest bidder for you know $2 million, I think was the price. Turns out the buyer was the infamous Mr. Shkreli. Um, since he purchased his, uh, he purchased the Wu-Tang album, um, he's become quite infamous for jacking up the prices exponentially on, um, drugs that save AIDS patients and pregnant moms. And, uh, recently was arrested for, I believe, securities fraud. Um, so Ghostface Killer was recently interviewed and asked about his thoughts on Mr. Shkreli. And during that interview, he referred to Mr. Shkreli as, quote, that Michael Jackson knows kid and as a shithead, <laughs> both of which I think are probably verifiable factually, but setting that aside. Definitely um, the shithead part. Definitely the shithead part. Yes. So um, Martin Shkreli can't help himself and decided to respond with um, three masked friends in a video um, where he uh, demanded an apology from Ghostface. And if uh, absent that apology, said he was going to destroy the Shaolin album, um, which, you know, again, under normal circumstances, you can kind of do what you want with your own property. Um, but he wrapped up his his missive um, with one of his friends saying, you'll be a ghost for real, motherfucker. And then uh, making the comment that, uh, you know, telling Ghostface not to mention his name ever again or... Um, you'll have more of a price to pay than just this video, which can certainly be interpreted as a threat since he referred to the guys in the video with him as his goons mm -hmm. and asked why um, Ghostface's goons aren't as tough as Martin Shkreli's goons. Um, so he seems to have a lot of time on his hands while he's <laughs> awaiting his security fraud trial. 
And, you know, this is a, just a fascinating way that he's choosing to spend that time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything about the story has me scratching my head. First of all, like, why is Shikreli, like Why does it even matter that Ghostface Killa thinks that he's the kid with a Michael Jackson nose and he's a shithead? Everyone thinks he's a shithead. <laughs> so I'm not really sure why this particular thing has raised his ire. But more than that, why does he have goons? Like... All of these things I don't understand about the story. Right. And he did seem, um, he was, it made comments about Ghostface that you're my son yeah. and I'm going to erase you from the rap record books, which I, I don't even know where to start with that comment. I mean, or, he's a member he, of one of the best known rap outfits of all time. Yeah. So you can't just erase him from anything. <laughs> yeah. Or just like, just the delusion of like Mr. Shikrelli. But um, it's a pretty thin air up there at the top of a skyscraper I, in Murray Hill. I, I guess. guess so. <laughs> um, but one of the things that um, I thought was interesting is that he has basically he was arrested for securities fraud and he bonded out. So that's why he's not in jail and he's at home with his goons making videos for TMZ. <laughs> but I'm thinking he and his goons are actually threatening Ghostface Killer. Hasn't he violated a condition of his bond? Right, and that's a that's a great question. And it would seem, you know, everyone um, who's let on a bond, I think there's some general uh, sort of boilerplate uh, things you're not allowed to do when you're out on bond. So usually you'll be restricted where you can travel. Um, you can't, you know, flee the jurisdiction. Also, you're not <laughs> supposed to commit other crimes while you're out on bail for your first crime. Yeah. In fact, in California... Uh, there is um, a two-year enhancement if you commit other crimes while you're out on bond, and it doesn't matter that you've been convicted of this secondary second crime. It's just whether or not you've committed it, which I think is a little circular in logic. But in any in any event, they sort of take committing additional crimes while you're out on bond kind of seriously because essentially you've paid money to say that I'm no longer going to be a threat or a danger in society. You have to at least take my word that I'm not going to do anything else additional that's bad while so that I actually can like be outside. Um, so the fact that he is going around and doing these imbecilic things is just I would just put him back in jail on principle alone but I mean he's probably thinks he's too cool for jail so I'm sure it would be fascinating to um, see how this all shakes out and then to kind of circle back to this idea of him threatening to destroy the um, one of kind Wu-Tang possible masterpiece I don't know none of us have been able to listen to it uh, normally as I, as I mentioned before you know you're allowed to do what you want with your own stuff if I want to set my dining room table on fire as long as I'm not hurting anybody there's nothing anyone can do to stop me um, however there is a there are legal doctrines that prevent you from destroying property when it would be viewed as kind of a waste of that property so if I burn my house down and it impacted my neighbors. That could be a criminal action. Um, so here where, um, this album, you know, by Mr. Shikrelli's own, uh, view was worth at least $2 million. Um, if he's going to destroy that while he has these charges pending against him for millions of dollars in securities fraud, um, I think it'll be interesting to see if the FBI or the courts step in to somehow try and protect that asset, 
um, so that in the event that he's convicted of this crime, um, it can be liquidated to be shared with his victims. That's right. Restitution to the victims. So um, I know that a lot of individuals who are sort of charged with or convicted of securities fraud, they try to get rid of as much property as humanly possible to, you know, like either into offshore accounts or Swiss bank accounts or like to relatives that aren't really relatives just to minimize the amount of restitution that they would um, be able to pay back and, and, and basically secure all of the, you know, their ill gotten gains for themselves. Um, um, and now, um, without, uh, since I have not looked into this super closely, but there is a federal law that's, I think caused some controversy, um, where, uh, civil forfeiture, where the government can basically start seizing any assets, even if they're not owned by the person who actually committed the crime, um, and use those to pay restitution to the victims. Um, we can certainly maybe discuss that on a later pod, but one particularly controversial story was, uh, I think the, I'm not sure if it was the U.S. Marshals or the FBI, I think seized a bunch of cars that were parked possibly at the Detroit Art Museum. Oh, yeah, um, as part of their bankruptcy exactly. case? Exactly. Yeah. So, oh, the, the art in the Detroit Art Museum, too, was part of that um, bankruptcy case. Right. So, you know, even assets that aren't necessarily tied to the wrongdoer, although there is no wrongdoer in bankruptcy, as a former bankruptcy lawyer, <laughs> uh, I want to make that clear. But um, this idea that you have to protect assets for paying back the people you owe money to. Um, so the FBI did tweet when they arrested Mr. Shkreli that they hadn't seized the album. So we'll see if that changes. Um, so this is completely off topic, but does the Library of Congress have a copy of it? Does the library because the Library of Congress has a copy of everything, right? I believe they do. I don't. No, that's that's a really interesting question. We should look into that. Yes, and we'll answer it on the next pod because I, I, you know, whenever I listen to podcasts and they bring up an issue and then they don't get back to me with an answer, it like really bugs me. So we will try to do our level best to at least answer the questions that um, we come up with, like in the course of our talking to one another. Um, so Martin Shkreli is not the only person who felt like it was the uh, smart thing to do to make threats against people in a very public forum. And I will say with our disclaimer that we don't offer any legal advice in this, um, I will offer you some life advice, which is <laughs> don't threaten to injure or commit violence against people uh, in the media, on a YouTube video, anywhere out in public. If yeah. you want to punch someone in the face mm-hmm. or um, turn them into a ghost for real, just tell your friends don't say it publicly. Probably don't say it at all. But if you just can't keep it to yourself, uh, keep it within a small group of trusted uh, advisors. Yes, uh, because making threats is uh, is definitely a crime, depending on like the level of threat and the specificity. You know, this is the United States, so we cannot all the time be prosecuted for our thoughts. Um, but there are times in which these thoughts cross a line, and, and then you can be prosecuted for for things like threats. Um, you know, Matt Barnes, although he was not criminally prosecuted, he was fined by the NBA for saying, um, you know, okay, well, a little bit of backstory on Matt Barnes, if you don't know. Uh, sometime over the summer, he was in Los Angeles and he was texting or FaceTiming with his son by his ex wife. And his son had expressed that he was a little uncomfortable because mom's new boyfriend was over. Mom's new boyfriend turned out to be Derek Fisher, who's currently the head coach of the New York Knickerbockers. 
and also a former teammate of Matt Barnes when they played at the Lakers together. So Matt Barnes felt that whatever was happening to make his kid make this comment warranted him getting in his car, driving the 15 to 20 miles to his ex-wife's house, and physically confronting Derek Fisher. So he did, um, and the NBA thought that it would be responsible of them to basically suspend Barnes for two games, which is about $64,000 for Matt Barnes. But they didn't do anything to Derek Fisher. Um, there wasn't any sort of allegation to indicate that like Fisher in any way was like endangering the child or had provoked this fight with Matt Barnes or even fought back, which is its whole own thing. Um, so he was not suspended or fined uh but again, I think from a management lawyer's perspective, I kind of have an issue with that. But again, that's for another day or another <laughs> uh, another rabbit hole that I'm not going to get uh, fall down. But um, and the uh, and the NBA Players Association is appealing that fine. But in the course of this all happening, um, Matt Barnes was asked by did he was by a media member, I think, and basically said about the whole incident and basically said, um, violence is never the answer. Sometimes it is. And he was fined an additional $35,000 for that. So for folks who maybe aren't sports fans, Matt Barnes also um, uh, gained some infamy by saying that he had dated Rihanna, to which Rihanna responded, I've never met him. I don't know what he's talking about. So um, Matt Barnes really just seems to be in the middle of a lot of controversy over the past year. Um, but very much like, um, Martin Shkreli, this is making not as direct a threat since he didn't say, you know, I'm going to commit violence against mm -hmm. Derek Fisher. Again. Well, yes, cause he already had, um, and the fine was really for sort of like conduct or statements detrimental to the league. So it would have been like, you know, almost the same as using like a homophobic slur or, um, a racial slur, like on the court or something like that. Which the NBA um, has been pretty quick to find folks for, um, most recently with the Rajon Rondo, Bill Kennedy incident. And in the past, um, I think they find Kobe Bryant a hundred thousand dollars yeah. and Joaquin Noah, um, 50 maybe. So, you know, the NBA, this, um, concept of, not to get away from our talk about threats, but um, this concept of having these kind of catch-all um, provisions in contracts is something that as management lawyers, um, we certainly like to see because it does offer flexibility to um, uh, let management take actions they think they need to protect their operations when um, something, an action taken by an employee doesn't necessarily fall into some enumerated category um, that, you know, you can't think of everything that could go wrong when you're writing a contract. So this is um, something that's pretty frequently seen to... Yes, the catch-all provision, because the NBA CBA is 510 pages long. And that's very long, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'm glad that they didn't list all the possible reasons for finding or disciplining someone, because then it probably would have been like four times as long, but... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's just conduct detrimental to the league. Mm -hmm. um, so since it sounds like that's all still outstanding with Matt Barnes. Um, I'm sure we will we'll have updates for you in later podcasts. But, um, you know, I guess the question with him is at what point, since he, it seems like he can't help himself, you know, he, whatever happened with his ex-wife and Derek Fisher being at their, or his estranged wife um, being at their home, it compelled him to drive over there and I believe, 
punch Derek Fisher in the face. Um, I don't know if the details have all come out. And now he's in front of the media having been punished for the first incident and, you know, makes these comments. Um, you know, at what point in the sort of uh, progressive discipline process is Matt Barnes going to – clearly the money is not preventing him from doing – foolish things. No, but you know, I thought about setting aside all of the other things that Matt Barnes does in his like own time and in his professional career that I'm not like a super huge fan of. I mean, the statement that he made, which is violence is never the answer. Sometimes it is. It's not an untrue statement. And I don't think that it's actually ad. Okay. Some people would say that it's advocating violence, but if he had gotten there and his kid was really endangered, like maybe a violent reaction would be the appropriate one to try to separate, you know, whatever was happening. So, you know, again, $35,000 from Matt Barnes is not that big of a deal, but, um, I don't know. I understand when the NBA like levies fines for like racial or homophobic slurs and, um, you know, and definitely suspending Rondo for the two or three games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get all of that, but you know, for Matt Barnes to, he, admittedly has, you know, caught to the fact that he punched Eric Fisher and he served his two-game suspension. Obviously, no one is trying to, like, tiptoe around the fact that violence occurred. So um, not that not that he, Bat Barnes thinks that the appeal of his suspension and the fines will be reversed by an arbitrator, but I think that if he tried to appeal this one, this he might actually have a chance. But um, that's what I was just thinking when I was reading, like, it's it's a truism. It's I don't know that you should be. He should have been fined for it necessarily. Right, um, and you know, punching somebody for a violation of the bro code probably doesn't rise to the level of uh, uh, times when violence is the answer. But um, um, but your question about progressive discipline. Um, yeah, I don't know that it didn't seem to me, at least in reading the hundred or plus pages of the CBA that I actually did read, that they did have progressive discipline. Um, so it doesn't. So even if he, I think that they're probably, if you were the commissioner, you know, if this is his sixth or his eighth or his tenth uh, similar incident, that the that the suspensions or the punishments might get. Uh, maximum, you know, maximized, but, mm-hmm. uh, insofar as, you know, the first time you hit someone, the second time you do this, the third time you're out suspended from like the, the only thing that you really seem to be able to suspend or turn, like get someone out of the league mm-hmm. for is for get betting and yeah. gambling on your own games. Interesting. Yeah. Um, as, as kind of a point of contrast in the NHL's collective bargaining agreement for certain offenses, they do have this concept of, repeat offenders Mm -hmm. and um if you're a repeat offender for a particular um, offense then you can be um the punishment escalates the further along you go um particularly it's aimed at stopping hits to the head to prevent concussions which um is a uh, big issue for the nhl right now but um if you commit two intentional hits to the head Mm -hmm. i think within a certain time period you're viewed as a repeat offender and then can be suspended for longer so um, yeah, well, that's the same thing with their drug testing too. Obviously, in in yeah. baseball and basketball and all in all the major sports, the more times you uh, commit offenses for uh, violating the drug program, um, yeah, your your punishment gets progressively worse. 
Um, and so for our last uh, sort of threat of the week, um, <laughs> we turn to the uh, wonderful world of MMA um, with a dispute between Conor McGregor, who is, uh, I think, kind of widely considered one of the best, if not uh, the best, fighter for his size in the UFC and um, everyone's favorite nightmare, Floyd Mayweather. Um, so Floyd Mayweather is a little bit of background. Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather uh, made some comments uh, to the effect that uh, Conor McGregor was more popular than Floyd Mayweather because Conor McGregor was a white guy and uh, that race plays a big part in the um, sort of differences between the attention that their their fights get. Uh, Conor McGregor, to be clear, even Conor McGregor admits that um, Floyd Mayweather did not call Conor McGregor himself racist, just that race plays a plays a significant part in why people like McGregor better than they like Floyd Mayweather. I would argue it's because Floyd Mayweather has a history of, you know, beating up women and just generally um, acting like a horrible human being. But setting that aside, uh, McGregor did not react well to these comments, uh, making a variety of statements about the oppression of Irish people and that he is a very, you know, multicultural person and, you know, he... uh, that, well, basically, you can't, um, you shouldn't lump McGregor into a bracket of, um, like, a particular bracket of essentially being white because he's, as Burke said, uh, he stated that he was multicultural and that he came from a background of oppressed peoples. But I think the most uh, interesting thing that he said was he did follow up all of this by saying that people have been buried in the desert for less, <laughs> which um, can certainly be viewed as a threat against Floyd Mayweather. And uh, whatever your personal opinions are about Mr. Mayweather, still can't threaten to kill him. <laughs> um, so the you know I think this kind of uh, has less of a workplace violence aspect to it, even though both of them are involved in. Um, forms of sport, but two different sports. Mm -hmm. But what I thought is sort of interesting about this is when you're talking about two people whose livelihoods are are basically, they get paid to assault other humans, you know, is that, um, is that sort of a mitigating circumstance when you're evaluating the comments they might make about one another, um, that it's just kind of posturing and not something to be taken seriously? Um, I think so. Um, you know, not only are they paid to hit one another, but they're also paid to generate publicity for their fights. And a lot of like the weigh-ins for fights and all the pre-fight drama is like trash talking and, you know, I'm going to whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's, and that generates, you know, the buzz around the fight and people want to see for some, whatever reason, like people in the ring with serious beefs with one another. I mean, it's like, you're not actually just doing it for sport. There's like some underlying element of like violence that's a part of it. Uh, Cause you can't, I don't think that people would want to sign up for like Pacquiao and Mayweather if they were best friends in the ring. Right. Even though no one wants to see that anyways, cause they're way past their primes, but, but like the, seeing, for example, it's not in a fighting um, situation, but watching Venus and Serena Williams play against one another, you know, I, I'm a big tennis fan and mm-hmm. they were both, I mean, Serena continues to be amazing, but those matches stunk because they clearly were struggling with the fact they're playing against people they, you know, loved very much. So mm-hmm. I think to to that end, you're right. Nobody wants to see two best buds. Yeah. Although the movie Warrior with, uh, not to spoil anything, but that's a fantastic movie that involves family members <laughs> fighting. Uh, <laughs> so going to your point about the, you know, the sort of the rhetoric that's used, I think that... Um, 
I think it's, you know, McGregor saying something that people have been buried in the desert for less than that would be seen as like the boasting and then just part of the, the talk that happens as opposed to someone like me saying that to you. <laughs> right. And sort of to that point, um, McGregor also, I think it was his uh, next opponent threatened to behead him and then drag his head through the streets of Rio de Janeiro because the fighter is Brazilian. Um, no one's taking action <laughs> on that. And, um, you know, I think... One of the things that I think has made Conor McGregor so famous in at least the UFC world and starting to make him famous kind of in a more mainstream way is the fact that he has this big, boisterous personality mm-hmm. and he will say whatever the heck comes into his head and you know people really enjoy that and he's making a lot of money off of it. So I don't think he's going to stop making these comments mm-hmm. anytime soon. Um, no, it, because it obviously is bringing him a level of notoriety that he can translate into a lot of other media opportunities and, and ultimately money for himself and his team. Um, he was on the Conan O'Brien show and uh, setting aside some misogynistic comments he made, he was you know, an entertaining, entertaining guy. So <laughs> I can see why he's, why he's keeping this up. Um, but, you know, going back to the comments that each of them made, you know, as you said, the reason that a lot of the reasons why people don't like Floyd Mayweather is not because he's African American, but because he has like abused girlfriends and, and ex girlfriends, and he goes and he spends like a ludicrous amount of money doing betting and um, and and things of that nature. And um, but I just thought it was an interesting comeback for McGregor to sort of like play the Irish card. Right. <laughs> um, I, I just thought it was because I don't think as many people understand, especially in America who aren't Irish or at least aren't related mm-hmm. to Irish people. Like, you know, this is the hundredth year anniversary of the Easter uprising and like basically what it meant for Ireland to become a free Republic and mm-hmm. how Northern Ireland is still a part of great Britain. And, um, and I think that like his comments back to uh, Floyd Mayweather, I mean, sort of, like triggered a little bit more discussion as to what that means to be to be Irish and right, and I know I um, as when I was back in law school, I did take a class called um, I believe it was Race and the Law, and um, one of the things that we kind of covered in that uh, setting was the idea that you know back a hundred years ago when there was a big um, immigration of folks coming over from Western Europe, that Irish people and Mm -hmm. Italian people weren't viewed as white the Mm -hmm. same way that, you know, um, uh, English people or Germans or whatever Mm -hmm. might've been. So while that certainly changed, I think in the United States, clearly based on Conor McGregor's comments, there's still a view of, um, uh, Irish people from Ireland that they, you know, it's, it's not, um, they're not necessarily part of the kind of mainstream power, uh, of Europe, of Europe. Yeah. Um, no, exactly. Like there were, um, you know, the people who build the transcontinental railroad were like Chinese, uh, immigrants slash slaves and Irish immigrants slash slaves. So, um, this was, it's not exactly been a, a rosy picture for her, even European immigrants in America sometimes too. But um, I just thought that was <laughs> that was just an interesting tack for him to take. But I understand where he's coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, so you brought up Venus and Serena, and we are at the end of the Australian Open. I can never figure out like what time the matches are on because it's like it's twelve hours ahead of us, I guess. It was like four days ahead of us yes. or whatever in Australia. <laughs> um, and so most of the matches for us here on the West Coast are on it like really late at night. Right. Um, so I don't usually stay up to watch it. And 
Um, but there was, because the Australian Open has basically started the Grand Slam season for 2016, there's been, um, there was discussion because of, a, was it a report or an analysis or an investigation done by BuzzFeed and the BBC into tennis match fixing? Right. So, um, yes, the BBC and BuzzFeed News together had done this um, pretty extensive investigation into um, match fixing in, te- in tennis. Um, it was sort of the whole thing apparently kind of spurred from a 2007 match between Nikolai Davidenko and um, an Argentine player whose name is escaping me at the I moment. I think his last name is Arguello. Arguello. Right. Which is a street in San Francisco. So <laughs> that's why I remembered it. <laughs> um, and allegations of match fixing there that were apparently caught um, by the betting houses as opposed to anyone else involved mm-hmm. in tennis. Um, and the allegations are there was an extensive uh, investigation done at that time. It was discovered that there were groups out of syndicates out of Russia, northern Italy, and Sicily mm-hmm. that were involved in match fixing. Um, about, I think the numbers were, uh, they saw probably 50 players that were kind of consistently showing up in matches where there was suspicious betting. Uh, the results of this investigation were turned over to tennis's men's tennis's governing body and nothing was done. So the story has been kind of resurrected because there was a uh, mixed doubles match at this year's Australian open that was seeing some really unusual betting, um, uh, I guess, betting patterns on it. Now, mixed doubles, um, not a particularly popular form of tennis for watching or betting, I'm told. Um, and so that's that part of that is what's uh, kind of struck the uh, investigators or whoever's analyzing this as uh, a trigger that there might be something weird going on. So, yeah, so essentially what makes tennis so great for match fixing is that while most of the time it is like an individual playing an individual, so you don't have to worry about like the performance of other members of the team. And, And it's not so much that it's you're throwing an entire match, but it could be sets. It could be um, so that you don't necessarily like, you know, a number four player doesn't go down to like a number 162 player, just even if both are healthy. And, and that would raise some suspicions unless, you know, you can say that the number four player in the world was injured. But if like the number four player dropped a set or something, that's that could be explained by a whole host of reasons. And so the investigation really did focus on these weird patterns of betting, how um, a lot of money would come in for these like kind of random matches that no one really cared about um, or weren't on the main tour, like maybe lesser tours. Mm -hmm. um, And, uh, and that they were really focused and concentrated on like, I want to say like a network of like nine computers in Russia and like a limited number of computers like in Northern Italy and Sicily. And um, I know in that Davidenko match, like Betfair, the people who were like handling all of the the betting were like, this is really weird. This is completely anomalous. And they actually voided all the bets because they're like, there's got to be something going on. Right. And so the, in the Davidenko match, um, exactly what Genevieve was talking about happened. They, in this, uh, the Buzzfeed BBC investigation, they use the term, the, um, set and break mob, which is when you have the better player, 
um, winning the first set or the first two sets, breaking serve, and then after they break serve, that's when the match sort of goes to like a in a weird hell. direction. Yes, right. So for Davidenko, for example, he. Um, had allegedly he had a foot injury so he retired from the match after winning I think the first two sets mm-hmm. by forfeiting the other guy won and so anyone who would bet on um Ar- Arguello would have won their bets mm-hmm. um and you know using the set and break concept it's apparently a way to kind of give a signal to the people placing bets causes the o- odds to spike in favor of the higher ranked player so that you can maximize your um gambling winnings um, so I guess the the outcome of the the investigation that was done and how the results were turned over and how essentially tennis isn't really doing anything about it I think is completely disheartening um, because it's it's something that they could probably monitor very closely if they wanted to put the resources towards it sure. um, and I think was it. I want to say Djokovic came out in the last two weeks and said someone had offered him $50,000. That sounds right. To basically throw a set. Um, And for, you know, someone like Djokovic, he makes millions in, like, not only endorsements, but in winnings. But part of the reports basically stated that, like, a lot of tennis players on the tour, especially the ones who, you know, are in the, not in the main tour, but in the lesser tour, they barely make enough money to cover their expenses for the year. Right. The expenses can be $100,000, I think yeah. they estimated. So if you have someone come up to you and offer you, like, $25,000 to lose a match when you're going to be playing, you know, like, however many matches throughout the year, it's, you know, it's a pretty good return for for what you think is just a match and that's, that's lost to you. But, um, I mean, I really wish that the tennis did take this. Um, it, it sounded like they were just going to stick their heads in the sand about it. At least that's the feeling that I got after reading the report and the analysis. Um, and it's that's just disheartening because tennis, you know, was really a lot of fun to watch and, um, especially at these high levels, but right. And the um, player issue at the um, Australian Open, um, his name is David Marrero, and he has claimed that um, he had a knee injury, and that news of that knee injury must have leaked um, as part of uh, from somebody, not him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what led people to start betting against his um, uh, his group in the mixed doubles match. He also went on to say that. You know, when he's playing, he looks over the the net and sees a lady over there. He doesn't play as hard as he normally would. So that might have been why he wasn't giving it his all. So He um, plays mixed doubles. There will always be a lady on the other side of the net when he plays mixed doubles. Apparently, he just doesn't try that hard mixed doubles because he doesn't want to hurt the the girl on the other side of the uh, the net, which hopefully will make him not a popular mixed doubles partner. And this issue will solve itself, at least with respect to him. But um, That's ridiculous. Yeah. So... um, so yeah, it's, and the reason, um, you know, it might be, I, I certainly thought to myself, like who cares if people fix Matt, not who cares, but who's getting harmed by match fixing? Certainly the fans who think there's some integrity to the game. Um, but you know, gamblers, you're, you're gambling, who cares? But there, you know, there is a valid point. I think this is why Betfair um, said that they voided all of those bets on the Davidenko match back in 2007 was that you do have people who are, um, you know, when they gamble, you know, they're acting on the assumption that there's not some inside information, information. Um, very similar to insider trading, that mm-hmm. concept, 
Um, and you know, it's not fair to the people who were, you know, just betting for fun, but doing it honestly to, mm-hmm. um, suffer the consequences of these, uh, mob syndicates. Although I'm not sure they proved that they were involved with the mafia, but the, the gambling corruption kind of yeah, groups. They're their own mobs really. Yeah. Um, organized and, crime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess, uh, Leighton Hewitt, who, uh, is like on a kind of farewell tour. He, he played at the Australian and they, because no one's released any of the names of the people who are suspected of being engaged in match fixing, um, but you can sort of, I guess, when you look at all of the data, you can tell like who was playing when and which tournaments and and like and what the, I guess, the relative scores were. So there were allegations that Leighton Hewitt was one of those people who, and he, you know, came out and he was just like, that's just absolutely false, and how dare you without any evidence like accuse me of this and. You know, and that's and that's a bad thing to have to watch someone who, you know, be, you know, is either innocent of these things or clearly believes that he is innocent of these things, having to basically try to prove a negative. And that's, you know, and that's and especially in someone who's in the twilight of their career, basically. Like, For this to be kind yeah, of his that's uh, how you swan go song. Out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, apparently one of the. I guess rationale that um, tennis's governing body had for not sort of delving into this deeper is the argument that um, they could be accused of libel by players um, if they released information that they may have been involved in match fixing, Mm -hmm. um, that that could uh, cause liability for um, either the investigators or um, uh, the ATP, which governs men's tennis. So um, they're sort of, using that to cover for themselves, but now it seems like, at least for Leighton Hewitt, the fact that they won't come out and just name the people who have been suspected of this mm-hmm. and show the evidence that they have um, proving or, you know, backing up those allegations um, is causing more trouble than... Yeah, one of the worth. other things that I read about or read, and this is sort of impacts, uh, comes into play with our, our work, is that... Um, they have the names of those people, but they weren't going to punish them because apparently match fixing was not a rule that you could like a stated enunciated <laughs> noticed rule that. So if you were to violate it, you could be punished for it on tour. And this is why you need catch all provisions <laughs> in your contracts. So, <laughs> but I can't imagine that like a governing body of a sport would not have as one of its principal rules you can't cheat, right? <laughs> you would, one would one would certainly think that, and um, the argument that I guess tennis, the ATP was providing was that they couldn't apply these rules retroactively. retroactively so since you can't punish them, why yeah. tell the whole world that they were fixing matches? Um, I'm sure Pete Rose would have a lot to say <laughs> about this, um, but it does seem like this uh, could be an issue for tennis going forward. The New York Times has. Uh, followed up on the BuzzFeed BBC investigation with a um, a story kind of delving into the world of tennis match fixing. Um, so I would guess this as more there is a bit of a break before the next Grand Slam tournament, but yeah. um, it's the French in May, I think, or June maybe. Yeah, I think it's actually yeah June maybe. Yeah, because Wimbledon is not until July, yeah, and, and then, then the, the U.S. Opens over Labor Day. Yeah. So. 
Um, yeah, so I guess there's there's time for them to do stuff, but you know, with tennis because of the absence of I guess like American men champions that we can right. get behind. I mean, obviously we have Serena in the women's tennis, and um, oh, and I can't remember her name. Um, the other really up and coming female tennis player that's American. Anyways, um, Steph, no, Stephanie something. Um, you're looking at this. No, that was Alexander Stevens, and she's not. I don't think she's playing anymore. Um, but yeah. <laughs> the fact that we don't have like an American men's uh, player that we can all get behind, mm-hmm. like literally, tennis only comes on our radar four times a year. Right. So that's unfortunate. But um, maybe it will give people um, in the media or some time to really try to push hard for some changes in terms of how transparent tennis is the tennis tour is um i guess in terms of transparency or trying to push forward investigations the nfl says has said that it's going to investigate the allegations against peyton manning and mrs manning and hgh usage um which if it's anything like any of their prior investigations (laughs) ought to go over really well um very professionally done i'm sure um (coughs) In the interesting, speaking of kind of retroactive application of rules, um, an interesting kind of wrinkle to the Peyton Manning story is even if they are to find that he did use HGH um, back in 2011, which is when the um, the timing of this particular allegation, apparently under the rules, uh, the drug testing rules of the NFL at that time, use of HGH wasn't against the rules. Yeah, so. it wasn't being tested for then. And not only that, he wasn't playing then. Right. So, you know, I guess the question becomes, even if they do this investigation, find out that he, uh, his wife was receiving the HGH, but funneling it over to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, who cares? They can't punish him for anything. And, um, yeah, it's, it's to me. So I understand that the NFL is under a lot of like, just getting a lot of flack for Nearly everything it does. The fact that the Super Bowl is in San Francisco this weekend and, you know, it's but, creating havoc in my own personal life by, like, moving all my bus stops around. And also it's actually taking place 60 miles outside of San yes. Francisco, <laughs> which I think will be a sad surprise for some people who are attending the game. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's – yeah. so nothing that the NFL do, does right now is the right thing. And I, I get that. But what is to be served – by this investigation. I understand that people are like kind of like you have these allegations out there and why aren't you doing anything about it and you will you will like spend how many millions of dollars at Piper as a Piper Marbury to do the Deflate Gate investigation of oh, DLA Jackson DLA Piper I can't DLA remember. Piper no, did they go bankrupt? I can't remember. Oh, so anyways. anyway, they spend a lot of money doing investigations that basically go nowhere. Now it is a billion dollar industry at this point. Yes, but why but why would you spend why would you basically come out and say you're doing this investigation when in 2011 you didn't test for HGH in 2011 Peyton Manning actually wasn't playing when he had the first surgery? And then he was cut by the, the Colts, Colts, like, you know, after, right. shortly after a second surgery. And he wasn't signed until 2012. And the allegation was only that he got HGH in 2011. Right. So, so I mean, uh, full disclosure, I'm excited about any investigation <laughs> into Peyton Manning's integrity since he walks around like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. And um, <laughs> I find that very hard to believe, Mr. Manning. But 
I think to, to Genevieve's point, you know, what, what are you, why are you doing this? It just seems like an enormous waste of resources and very much like, um, the commissioner's office and my favorite, Mr. Goodell, just trying to cover themselves, um, to show that they've taken some kind of action on an allegation, um, when they, you know, decided last year to go, Mm -hmm. you know, guns blazing after Tom Brady and the Patriots, um, they, you know, clearly botched the Ray Rice investigation. Um, what did they think happened to that woman in the elevator <laughs> to cause her to be unconscious when it opened? Um, you know, they dropped the ball, I would argue, with respect to Greg Hardy. Um, did they suspend him for 10 games, but only after a whole controversy erupted about the fact they didn't do anything when he was first arrested? Oh, well. And then his owner at the time cried about it, and it was just a lot of... So, well, okay, I would, for me, not suspending him right away, even though he had been arrested. I mean, that's a knee-jerk reaction. And as we always say, we have to do an investigation to let, you know, whatever facts come in so that we don't react disproportionately or inappropriately. But, I mean, I think that it would have been, like, a way better move for the NFL to be um, partnering with the NFLPA and issuing a statement saying, we don't want like HGH in our game and we are working on drug testing policies, but these allegations, if we're assuming that they're true, happened in 2011. There wasn't, this isn't a violation of the agreement back in 2011. We can't retroactively punish him for something that wasn't a violation of the time. And like, even if he was taking it, he actually wasn't playing. So it wasn't enhancing his performance anywhere. Right. And if they had come out and said that, a lot of people would say, oh, it's only because it's Peyton Manning that you're not investigating it. But at least you'd have the league and their union coming out and saying why we're not doing it. Right. And it does seem like this is an opportunity where they had a very justifiable reason not to do this investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no – at the end of the day, even if they find out that he did – take HGH while there might be some moral victory for uh, Patriots fans, at least, uh, you know, there's no punishment. So you're just kind of embarrassing him, making him look like a jerk for no real Yeah, I mean, upside. you will have this investigation. And even if it, as I said, if it's found that he did it, what can you do? Nothing. Right. And I just think that if we ran the NFL, like things would be so much better. I. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, it does, I think it kind of uh, amplifies Roger Goodell's sort of reputation as just somebody who does things for perception. Like he's doing this because people are upset that he didn't do anything, Um, not because it's actually the right thing to do or that anything's going to come of it. So um, it just really reeks of illegitimacy and seems like a giant waste of a private company's resources, but, um, you know, uh, just another kind of distraction from whatever else the NFL is doing. Well, but I mean, uh, you and I would probably pay good money to be a fly on the wall in Roger Goodell's office because I want to know, is he really the person who like is as, you know, the one pulling the strings to have these things happen? Does he have a, you know, these trusted advisors who are giving him really bad advice. I mean, what is going on? Because you can't have this many missteps, this many public missteps, at least in my estimation. Like you got to get yourself a new bunch of friends. Like your posse's got to change. I don't. 
He yep. needs he needs to hit, find some new squad goals, <laughs> I guess. So. Um, yeah, exactly. And um, you had made a point that I was going to say something about, but it's lost. It's lost all time. Um, so I think that's pretty much what we have this week. I think that's it for this week. There's a lot going on. So mm-hmm. um, thanks for listening. And we will uh, be back with plenty more <laughs> interesting uh, legal issues involving our favorite celebrities uh, next week. Thanks. <laughs>